Well, tonight we're going to finish up the third day of the creation narrative. We'll finish the wonderful way that the Lord has purposed for us to understand what he's created. I'm going to take a little bit of a journey with you as we begin. But again, I remind you that God has not told us all that he did in any of the days. He's not making a finite description of every last thing. I had a couple of folks this morning and they, you know, they wanted to talk about various aspects of scientific discipline and and while that's well and while that's good and that's some of the reason that we want to discuss some of these things in in some detail we have to always remember that our goal is to make sure that what we believe lines up with what God has said through his word and so it's not to overly speculate but it is absolutely to view the information that we have before us through the lens of scripture And as I said previously, it is always true that your worldview actually shapes the way you generally look at things. If you believe there is a God, then you look for God. If you believe there is no God, then you try and factor out that there's any possibility of God's existence. And that is not to say that one person is inherently more intelligent than another, That's not to make a mockery of anyone's science. That's simply to say that your worldview does shape the way you view information. And anyone that says that it doesn't is not being honest. Because it does. Now most people would like to believe if they're engaged in a scientific discipline that they're completely neutral. I am going to share some things with you tonight that will help you understand that also is likely not the case most of the time because the basic premise of most scientific disciplines begins with a theory a theorem a hypothesis some type of postulate to where there is initial assumptions made that thus and so is true and thereby the experiments that follow after it are to in essence prove the postulation that's been made And that is absolutely true with regard to whether you believe that there is a creator who dwells outside of space and time who could possibly have created the entire universe and everything in it, or whether you believe that there are nothing more than matter, space, time, and energy in existence in our universe, and they somehow organize themselves. Those two starting points, as we said when we began this book, in the beginning matters. And so we're going to look at a little bit of that tonight uh, before we move into to God and botany. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we are again just so grateful to be able to draw from your word this great depth of truth. God, what you have said, and whether we understand all of the tiny tidbits, the minuscule parts, the nuts and bolts, the, the things that go on inside of the various levels of science ultimately is not what's going to cause us to be able to know you. It's to know you, Jesus, and the power of your resurrection that brings us into a right relationship with God the Father. And so we pray uh, that you, Jesus, would be magnified in tonight's study. We bless your name for your word and pray now that you'd speak to us through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Verse 11 here in Genesis chapter 1. And it says, then God said. So again, the focus here is God speaking into existence something. Uh, Remember that he is now in the phase of creation uh, that is defined by a different word than in the very first verse where God is creating. He is now making, he's molding, he's shaping, he's taking that which he has already put into the universe. In other words, the basic elements of of space, time, and matter. So all matter as it exists anywhere in the universe, so that would include atomic level, molecular level. We've already seen that he's created the surface of the earth, the continents. He did that last time we were together. He's created the oceans, placed them within their boundaries, and, and he is systematically describing to us what he does in these six days of creation. So he has stuff to work with, He's not creating ex nihilo out of nothing. He is now taking existing things and using them to make what is going to come into view for us. And he says, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass. And and as he says this, notice he says, let the earth, let the Eretz, let that land that he's already created. So when you look at the, the basic construct of all biologic life, but very specifically botanical life, When you look at it, it's basically made out of dirt, and humans are basically made out of dirt. Uh, If you want to look at it in in that sense, there are uh, just a handful uh, of chemical components necessary to make up most life in a general sense. And he says, so let the earth bring forth grass. He's going to use three very specific delineations. The science of taxonomy is the science of naming things. And so we still use these same three basic definitions of all biologic things, and he's going to give them to us now as he describes what he does in creating plant life. Is the way we can look at this. Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And so it was, the earth brought forth grass, Herb that yields seed according to its kind. And again, he's not talking about herb like we have here in California. So all you potheads, forget it. Just saying. It's not what he's a grass, herb. You guys are like going crazy right now. Herb that yields seed according to its kind. And the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And notice he uses for the first time according to its kind. We're going to look at this in some depth tonight because it is extremely important when looking at the natural world that we realize that regardless of the lies that have been told for a very long period of time, there has never, and I repeat, never been found anywhere in the geologic column, anywhere in the fossil record, a definitive record of a transitional type of kind changing to another kind. And so it says here very clearly that within kind, there can be variation. But it says that those kinds stay within themselves. We would look at that as staying within species. And so in this case, things that bear seed in and of themselves stay within their kind, Fruit-bearing plants stay within their kind, and trees that yield seed according to their kind stay within their kind. The same is true for all animal life. There's no fossil record of any animal ever transitioning from one kind, one species, into another species, including human beings. 
And so as you look at this, you have to realize what God is saying to us. He's not saying that there's not minor genetic variation. He's not saying, in essence, what we would call microevolution does not exist. He's saying that macroevolution does not exist. Microevolution is that change that is within kind. In other words, a bird's beak transitioning over time because of harder nuts or longer necessities to get inside of certain uh, places where they might store their food. Those types of minor variation, there's all kinds of different kind of dogs. I had no, no idea how many different kind of dogs until I moved to Lomita. We are the world's capital of weird dogs, I'm just saying. There's like, we've got the, the Chihuahua Poos, and it's like, what is that? We have a Great Dane that lives on our street that's like nine feet tall when it stands up. But here's the silly thing. They're all still dogs. They're genetically dogs. Very different dogs, but they're still dogs. They're not cat dogs. They're not bird dogs, as in part bird, part dog. They're not lizard dogs. They're dogs. So within their kind, lots of variation outside of their kind. Zero fossil evidence that it's ever occurred. And so he begins with the plant world, the botanical world. And so what he's saying here is, Look within its kind, see the variation, but see if you ever locate an outside of kind change, one kind to another kind. So the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And so he begins these frequent sayings that what he created was good. And what he's saying is not as good It's very good. He's actually implying that it is perfect in that sense. He's saying, this is a good creation. And it's it's very important for us to understand that if God is God, we believe he is, and God is creator God, and we believe he is, and that what God does is good, then it ought to work. Amen? It should be something that's functional. And we're going to look at that a little bit tonight as well. And so it is, and so the evening and the morning were on the third day. So now we've had three full days within the creation narrative. I'm going to begin tonight to just speak to you a little bit, because I think there's some less than truthful statements that are made on both sides. Uh, I've been around long enough to listen to some creation science arguments. It's just like, "Mm, no, that's not actually factual, and it kind of makes the creationist argument look kind of silly. And then I've listened to a lot of bloviating by evolutionists uh, that fall into that category as well, stating things as absolute fact that not only are not settled science, but are anything but settled science. And in fact, they skip over the very first things that need to be decided, which is how do you get chemicals to store information and then replicate the storage of that information to something else. In other words, to pass it on in essence, to the next thing that would be created out of that. There is no mechanism that's ever been discovered that can do that naturalistically. And so I want to look at a few things tonight to kind of talk about that irrationality sometimes within the argument. In other words, what's good for the goose, let's call that the evolutionist side, is not necessarily good for the gander, which we'll call that the creationist side. In other words, they're both geese. They just happen to be male and female. And one says something that 
you kind of have to say, well, that's not true. And they kind of have different standards sometimes going back and forth. And in this case, evolutionary scientists very specifically like to look at themselves as kind of the paragon of truth. And very often when you get engaged in conversation with them, if you're just conversing, you're just talking about things, um, you will find very frequently that someone like me who believes that God actually created the universe and everything in it is viewed pretty much as a fool, a moron, someone who not only doesn't have two brain cells to rub together, but those two brain cells that I do have probably don't like each other because they don't communicate much. But I want to talk to you a little bit about that because that is not only not the case, uh, some of the most brilliant minds that have ever walked the face of the earth uh, are actually creationists, people who believe not necessarily in a personal God, in other words, Jesus Christ, but they believe that perhaps the best of all the explanations for the natural world that we see is that there has to be some form of a creator who dwells outside of the actual space and time in which those things are created, and that is a better explanation than perhaps some aliens from some foreign part of the universe or perhaps a folded part of our universe or perhaps another dimension of space and time or perhaps another reality, which are some of the current things that are being bantered about uh, in evolutionary circles, or that there were aliens that brought that information here and somehow the aliens transmitted it to Egyptians, the Egyptian passed it along to us. So sometimes that kind of mystical thought process uh, is, is a thing that we kind of get picked on a little bit for, and it's not necessarily fair. I was reading a, a secular, it's a, actually a guy that's a secular humanist. I happen to like the way he writes because he's intellectually honest. And this is one of those things that I would always encourage you to do. Don't be dismissive, be intellectually honest. When you're talking about these things with people, admit that you don't know everything. Because the moment that you would say that you do know everything or you can prove something, you automatically are in the wrong. Because I cannot prove to you, as I said this morning, I cannot prove to you via the scientific method that God created the heavens and the earth. I can only tell you that the evidence that I see much prefers that there's a creator versus an unguided process plus billions of years of time. So, I'm not trying to tell you that I've proved that there is a universe that was created by God. I'm simply saying that what I see leads me to believe that that is a very good theory. He writes this. He says, the rational thinkers, evolutionists, have not always been the most insightful and open-minded people. You know, that's true. Throughout history, the rationally thinking the rational, those who are rationally thinking have often come under the guise of repressive attitudes towards the new and the unconventional. In other words, very often it is actually the, the, the core of scientific, scientific disciplines that are highly invested in areas of science that become the ones who staunchly rep repress anything that goes against what they already think they know is the point that he's trying to make. This guy, Rob uh, Wipond, he actually lives up in Vancouver, B.C. He writes a great blog, by the way. He goes on to discuss this, and he's talking about uh, about 150 years ago. And he says, indeed, science and rational thinking have, have got, had a dubious and a ragged history in our culture. Louis Pasteur, whom you probably all know, uh, if you have pasteurized milk, if you, you, know, you don't get bacterial diseases very often, you can kind of thank him. Uh, ridiculed for his speculations about invisible creatures that caused illnesses. In other words, he was ridiculed 
uh, for the fact that he actually believed that there were invisible creatures. He believed that there were invisible creatures because he believed what the Bible said, that the universe that we see is made out of things that we cannot see. He took that very literally. And so he began to look for things that we would call uh, viruses and bacteria. He was able to find those. You, you see, there are times when science is its own worst enemy because it begins with a set premise, and that set premise has had so much time invested in it that no one wants to back down. Case in point was the 1999 Kansas decision. Uh, that Kansas decision was basically that the, the educational board for the state of Kansas said that we can no longer teach as hard science the theory of evolution because there are just too many flaws in it. When you look at it, there, there is a level of irrationality that you have to have to believe that evolution explains everything. So rather than saying we're going to throw out the theory of evolution, we just say we're going to teach alongside that there is a possibility that perhaps creation uh, is equally as valid a way to understand what we see. A few of the comments that came from the evolutionary side of the argument, specifically the legal team and those guiding the legal team, said this. They said, biology without evolution hardly counts as science, and thus it does not logically fulfill any university's admission requirement for science. They went on to say that colleges and universities of the nation could make an enormously powerful statement by announcing their refusal to count as an academic subject any high school biology course taught in Kansas. So they immediately jumped to the conclusion that anybody that thought that way had to basically not have any scientific background that would be worthy of a higher education. The reason I say, say this is what they went on to say next because this is the argument that often ensues when you talk to people who believe in evolution versus creation. They went on to recognize that creationists seem to be winning the battle. And in an obvious facet of the problem that we face is science illiteracy, essentially dominated by individuals who understand neither science or the fundamental scientific theories, nor what science is. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of insulting. Because I know an awful lot of really, really, really brilliant people who don't necessarily believe that we came from monkeys. Who don't think that you could give enough time to the universe itself for it to have created itself. And they are PhD'd, multidisciplinary scientists of the very highest order. But this is the argument. There's a belittling that goes on as if someone who believes in a creator is somehow intellectually inferior to someone who believes that evolution explains everything. And I want to share with you my own experience with Dr. A.E. Wildersmith. I would encourage you, you can just Google his name. There's all kinds of stuff on YouTube. He did a whole series on origins. I would highly encourage you to watch those. But before his death, Dr. Wildersmith, had, I had the privilege of meeting him when Connie and I were still at Calvary Chapel Vista. We heard him in person. But he shared with us that he had a standing offer at the time uh, to a, a person you might have heard of, Dr. Carl Sagan, to debate any time, any place, 
to be aired on PBS. Dr. Wilder Smith said, I will put up $10,000. If you win the debate, you can have my $10,000. Carl Sagan never took him up on that debate. He refused to do it. 1986 at the Oxford Union, Dr. Wilder Smith, who is, in my belief, one of the, was one of the preeminent, has since gone home to be with the Lord, uh, creation scientists in the world, debated with Richard Dawkins, who, if you know anything about evolution, you may have even read some of his work, debated with him at the Oxford Union, which is like the highest level of debate that you can possibly have pretty much anywhere in the world, only on the science of origins. Widely believed that Dr. Wilder Smith clearly, decisively won that debate with Dr. Richard Dawkins. He's written a bunch of books, one of them, The Creation of Life, absolutely stellar. The Natural Sciences, Know Nothing of Evolution, amazing. Man's Origin, Man's Destiny. These, these are absolutely, if you're into science, get them, read them, get in the know. But let me tell you what kind of person Dr. Wilder Smith is. He's home in heaven, but as far as I'm concerned, his work lives on. 1941, he got his first Ph.D. in organic chemistry at the University of Reading in England. He got a second Ph.D. in pharmacology from the University of Geneva in Switzerland. He got a third Ph.D. from the Swiss Federal Technical Institute uh, in Zurich. As a chemist, he was a senior chemist uh, for Imperial Chemical Industries following the Second World War. Uh, he was promoted to the Countess of Lisbon Memorial Fellowship uh, within the university system at Oxford. Uh, he, he was accepted as director of medical research to a Swiss pharmaceutical company. Uh, he received all kinds of things. He became the director of, of the professor of the medical center, University of Illinois, professor of pharmacology. He, he became then the traveling visiting professor for the University of Illinois. He was a three-star NATO general, and he was in charge of the health program for NATO. So if that's a dumb guy, then let me be dumb. (laughs) Dr. Wildersmith had three earned doctorates, and he believed that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he went on to write monumental works about the impossibility of chemical evolution. And those works have become the basis of many other scientists' work. And so when we talk about irrationality, uh, I I think we need to be fair about the irrationality because sometimes it comes from both sides. During that Wilder-Smith-Dawkins debate, university doctoral student in evolutionary biology, specifically the discipline of botany at Oxford University, made this following comment. said, after participating and watching the debates with creationists eager to argue about the supposed gaps in the evidence for evolution and natural selection, I concluded that arguing about the data is pointless. Now, I can tell you this about Dr. Wildersmith and his debating skills. He always argued about the evidence and about the science. That was where he hung his hat. But he says that it was pointless, that we should instead center the debate on the basic philosophies of science and religion. It's actually admitting that the only basis for the argument of evolution 
is religion. That it becomes a religious view. Now in saying that, here's the reason I'm telling you these things. You will get bullied by people who have lots of letters after their names. But they'll be bullying you over things that they cannot prove. And they will say things to you like, well, when you actually have a degree like I do, then we can talk. It doesn't take a degree to understand that the physical universe cannot have created the order that is within it in and of itself without outside guidance. And yet, that gets skipped over. That chemicals can't store information without an input from the outside of information and an organized system being created to store it and transmit it. That is a fact. Those things are skipped over. So please don't be bullied. Ask them to explain to you how chemicals store information and don't leave that place until they give you an answer. Because if you can't solve that question, then you cannot get anywhere else with the information. Because that is the preeminent question that has to be answered. How do you get something that has no capacity to store information, to not only store that information, but to make that information increase in its informational capacity to continue to get much more infinitely complex without someone guiding it from the outside? It doesn't happen anywhere in the universe. You can get into all kinds of crazy things. And we'll not do that tonight. We're going to get into a little bit of physics next time in our study of the, of the creation of the solar system and the stars themselves. But the mind-bending world of cosmophysics, to put it bluntly, is a level of mathematics that most human beings not only can't understand, but even if you understand them, chances are you may not agree with the conclusions that are made. It's mind-boggling, mind-bogglingly complex. Dark matter, cold matter, quarks, quasars, elementary particles, what they do in bent space and time, dimensions of space and time, how many realities are there, how many universes actually exist, are there any that are parallel? And these are all speculations. No one knows the answers to these questions, but there are speculations that are thrown out so that when you hear these things, they are so complex that they automatically make you believe you have an inferior position. Again, make sure that no one gets to skip over the basic question to something far more complex that not only can they not not explain to you, but is not proven science. So don't let yourself be bullied. You know, when somebody comes up to you and says, well, can I talk to you about hyperstrings? You're going, I don't know, is that a type of string you get at Walmart or what, you know? You know, antimatter, anti-loops of time. I mean, the stuff that's thrown around in those types of circles, higher dimensional mathematics and computer simulations of these things are mind-bogglingly complex. And here's what basically this has to boil down to. And again, it's the simplicity of the argument. Because somebody asked me first service, they're just like, well, you know, we're, we're pretty sure there was a singularity. I said, how can you possibly be sure that there was this infinitely small ball of matter that was the entire universe, no one was there, and this thing exploded? You're trying to tell me that you know what happened in, in the first 10 to the negative 43rd 
power second of the universe, that that determined the actual course of all of the matter in the universe, and you're now extrapolating that out to 10 to the hundredth power. These are mind-bogglingly large numbers, and you're saying that you know that factually. Not only were you not there when it began, nobody's going to be there when we get to the supposed end. So your basic premise is an untestable theory. They go, well, we just know that we know. No, you don't know that you know. You have a very, very highly invested guess. And that guess involves extremely bright people who have spent a lot of time studying these things. But it is nonetheless based on assumptions. So don't be pushed around. We get into evolutionary psychology. We get into evolutionary sociology. Isn't it interesting that the whole field of psychology is based on a psyche that is non-material and yet most evolutionary biologists don't believe there's any such thing as a non-material world? Did you ever think of that one? Why do we have psychologists? Why do we have psychiatrists? Why are we worried about what the mind does if here's what happens to you? Let's just say that somehow you were a monkey and you became a man. Let's somehow say, say that you went from goo to you you, you transitioned from a blue-green algae, and you're now a human being. And the whole process that, that was involved there was higher states of order without guidance, and all of a sudden, here you are as a person. The very best thing that could happen to you in an evolutionary sense in becoming a man is that you hate everyone else, you kill them, and you take their stuff. Why does humankind have altruistic capability of thought? Why do we have any goodness within us? Why is it that there is anything that you think that is about anyone else? Because if you're just an accident over a very long period of time of chemicals somehow storing information, then the very last thing you should ever become is good. You should be mad as a hornet all day, every day. And when someone cuts you off on the freeway, just run them off and kill them. Take their stuff. It'd be better because then, certainly, the stronger species would survive. And yet, that's not who we are. Not only that, that's not only not who we are, it's not who we are as a, as a people. Humankind has within it inherent ability to be altruistic, to think of good things in the midst of a difficult situation and act on it. Makes no sense. We spend billions on mental health when we believe that we're an accident. Shouldn't those accidents actually work out to our benefit if accidents are good? A lot of questions. So setting this up, let me show you a couple of things. You see, because you're, you're always told the same thing. Well, there's fossil proof of you know, all of the plants and trees, and we now know that these were, you know, very different species that, that existed primarily about 450 to 485 million years ago is usually a number thrown out. It's a period of time called the Cambrian Explosion. That period of time in the fossil record, about 85 million years in length, uh, according to an evolutionary biologist, someone who believes that. But like all other science, what does the evidence actually show? I'm going to give you a couple of things to just feast on tonight. Number one, uh, Burgess Shale deposits that are found up in British Columbia. It's a 
shale oil field. Some of the richest fossil finds in the world have been found in there. Exact ferns, exact palms, the exact plant life in the exact same fossil layer as animals that were supposedly around some 400 million years earlier. You have all kinds of differentiation within the fossil record that when you look at it, it's like, how can those things, how can that possibly happen? Why, why would that be like that? Well, it would be like that if the whole earth at some point in time was covered by a gigantic flood and all kinds of sediment stirred up and things got buried very rapidly. But if you're talking about very slow processes over very long periods of time, that creates a huge problem. The secondary area that you would really love to look at, if you ever get the chance to go there, if you get to go to the foothills of the Himalayas, I would encourage you to do it. What you're going to find there in the Siwalik Hills is a whole mountain range that the entire mountain range from one end to the other, it's almost 1,500 mile long, 1,500 miles long. In various places, the entire fossil record, in other words, when we find a fossil today and we find it in a specific layer of rock, that layer of rock normally indexed for the Cambrian period is a little tiny animal called a tribolite. Uh, the problem is they found those alive in the Indian Ocean. They're still around. So they're either lousy evolvers or they were really, really, really dominant and they should have taken over the world. But those fossils, the whole fossil column as we know it today, in other words, those locations of the various fossils, when you find the fossil, it tells you how old the rock is. When you find the rock, it tells you how old the fossils are. It's basically circular reasoning to some degree, a little more highly ordered than that. But when you find those things, here's the problem with those hills. The entire fossil record is completely flipped upside down. Top to bottom. So what should be on the top is on the bottom, and what is supposed to be on the bottom is on the top. And I don't know how you explain that. I don't know what you do when you find a sandstone layer that should be the Cambrian, but it's actually the, let's say, the, one of the other designations. You see, here's, here's how they explain it. Well, it's an anomaly, it's a 1,500-mile-long anomaly with billions of fossils in it. And some of the things that you find in it are polystrate fossils. And the problem with polystrate fossils is if the rock shows a certain length, you got some really length of time, you got some huge problems here because you got the bottom of the tree about 600,000 years newer than the top of the tree. So that's either a really old tree or a very, very slow grower over in this. You've got a real problem with this one because you've got the roots of the tree are 400,000 years older than the trunk of the tree. And in that one, you've got sedimentary rock on one part and igneous on the other separated by about 100,000 years. So when you see those kind of things, that's more than an anomaly. That's a real serious technical problem if you believe that the rock layers dictate how old that tree is. And if you take fossils that are next door to it and you say they're okay but that one isn't, you, you got a problem. But this is the evidence that exists in the world of botany. We have ferns that exist today that are the exact same ones that are found in the fossil layers. They're identical. So much so that, especially in coal seams, 
we're actually still finding DNA of some of those ferns and some of those palms. And the reason that that's important to us when we look at the, the world of the botanical is the same classifications that we find here still exist both in the fossil record and on the earth today. You have acotyledons, those things that are, in essence, without seed. They reproduce either through a root rhizome or, or through a self-propagation. You have those things that are monocotyledons, those things which we would call seed-bearing plants. Those could be herbs, shrubs, those types of things. And you have dicotyledons, those things that are fruit-bearing plants that have their seed within themselves. And guess how many other types there are? Zero. So God was being truthful when he laid out what happened in the botanical world. He said there's going to be three types of plants. There's going to basically be grasses or seedless plants. There's going to be seed-bearing plants. And there's going to be fruit-bearing plants. And everything else is within a kind, those three things. Why does that matter to us? Doesn't explain all the details. Doesn't explain all the nuts and bolts. But as you saw in those polystrate fossils... There are some serious problems with saying that those trees are one age versus another age because you got the top of the tree in one part of the geologic column and you got the bottom of the tree in another part of the geologic column. So which is wrong? The age of the tree or the geologic column? What do you think's wrong? It's the geologic column. It's messed up all over the planet. If you travel to northern Arizona, southern Utah, you travel that whole area where the Grand Canyon, Canyonland, Zion, Bryce, that whole area. When you look at it, there's all kinds of sandstone layers that you follow them out. Interestingly enough, when you get to the end, to the edges of those things, you know what you find? Generally, large clams and mollusks. The very things that you find in the bottom of the seafloor if it's uplifted. Only problem is, they're at the tops of the cliffs. They should be at the bottom. If that all got eroded... They shouldn't be at the top. The design that God makes here, I think, is an example of what we call functioning maturity. God's not telling us that he did everything and how he did all the minute details, but he's saying this. He says, look, I I made the universe, and it was good. So he has not created what yet? Animal life and man. If he's going to put animal on a planet... How long is the animal going to live? Because, see, this is the exact opposite of evolutionary biology. They say the animals came first, then the plants. Here's the problem. You do that, what happens to the animals? They die. They need food, don't they? So I think God's explanation that I created the plant life first, and I did it in three very specific types or kinds, and I put it on the, plant, on the earth in functioning maturity. In other words, he didn't plant a bunch of seeds and then sit there and go, man, I hope this grows. Sure hope this project works out. Because evolution says that. Basically, evolution says if you give anything enough time, it will get better. If you take all of those scientific disciplines and you boil them down, you start with something simple, and it by itself, without outside intervention, is going to get more complex. It's going to get better each time it supposedly evolves. The problem with that is not only the amount of time, but how does it transmit the change? That's always been the question. So so how does that simple thing become a more complex thing if somebody doesn't tell it how to be more complex? 
It's a function of information technology. We know that it's in the DNA. So God creates these plants not as seeds. He doesn't sprinkle seed all over the whole earth and sit there, wow, I hope this all grows. He actually creates the plants functioning exactly as he says here, and they are functioning plants that have their seed within them like grasses, those things that create seeds that will replicate from seeds, and those things which we would call fruits. Every last plant on earth has those things, but if he had created them as seeds, there is zero chance this would have worked because on the next day he's going to start creating animal life. What are they going to eat? They're not. They're going to die of starvation. It's just like he didn't put Adam in the garden as a zygote. Somebody asked me that. You know, well, how did Adam, did, you know, was he, was he an egg? Was he a, I said, well, that kind of doesn't make any sense, does it? Think about it. You know, Adam, I, want, I hope that you can exist outside of the womb because there's no woman yet. You, you see, a scientist would say, well, that's an impossibility. If you're dealing with God, and God is infinite, and God is all knowledge, he has no limitation, zero incapacity to accomplish anything, and he simply says, this is what I'm going to do, and if he wants to create a world fully functioning, he's quite able, able to do that. That, to me, is, it, it's a whole lot easier to understand that God, a creator outside of space and time, could do something like that than relying on the fact of some alien life form that we do not know where they are, where they came from, or if they even exist. You see, God told us he exists. So we can either believe his voice, his record, what he said to us very plainly and very, very clearly, that in the beginning, God, or we can keep looking for E.T. to phone home. He's got the wrong number. He's not dialing it up. And so when you think about these things, he gives us a little hint here. Verse 11. He says, seed and kind. And each thing is after its kind. And it occurs ten times here in the rest of this narrative. And this is the theory that really, I believe, cripples evolution at its fundamental level. Because basically, God is making a differentiation. He's saying, look, I'm going to put genetic specificity within the DNA molecules that are contained within the structure of the DNA and absolutely everything. And within its kind, it can stay there and it can replicate in all kinds of different ways. Dogs will be multifaceted. Cats, the same thing. Birds, the same thing. All the basic animal classifications, those taxonomic names that we have for things, those will all be that way. But you will never have uh, you know, you're going to have a Washingtonian palm turn into a date palm. That's not a problem. A Doberman, Dachshund, that's not a problem. But a trout to a Tyrannosaur, that's a problem. An iguana to an emu, that's a problem. They're completely different genetically. It's a reason that they don't interbreed. It's a reason you won't see those types of things in the world today. It's a reason we don't see those types of things happening today. And you're wandering around. I'm pretty sure you're not looking for your neighborhood cat dog, right? There's, we've got cats. We have dogs in our neighborhood. But we have cats and we have dogs. We don't have cat dogs. They're in the same space. There's no limitation on their interbreeding if they wanted to do such a thing. But there is a specificity that God programmed into their DNA that will not allow them to do that. It can't happen. 
The recombination of the DNA can't happen between two species. It just won't happen. We've tried doing this in the laboratory, tearing apart DNA and splicing it. If you've ever watched the movie Jurassic Park, it's, you remember what the problem was? Well, we didn't quite have all the DNA, so we threw in some frog there. That's what we're doing. God already has programmed it, and we're trying to tear it apart, saying, well, we'll just reprogram it. That is not making anything new, nor is it causing something to come about from nothing. That's taking what God already did and trying to do something with it. So the evidence family favors very heavily the fact that God, Logos, the word that we saw in John 1, 1, imprinted that information by species, genus, family, those things that we would normally say in scientific disciplines. And he says, look, I made them this way. They'll stay within their own kind. Uh, any type of research in those things, you can research within kind. You get all kinds of variation. We'll get into a little bit of the, the icons of evolution, hackles, embryos, and all those kinds of things. But the preeminence of this thought process, the creation of kinds. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this. Verse 37, and Paul's basically given us a little bit of an argument uh, here for this basic premise. What you sow, you do not sow the body that it shall be. And it's talking about our specific bodies because one day you're probably going to croak unless the rapture happens first, amen? You're going to die. Your body's going to get sown into the ground. He says, but it's a mere grain. Perhaps uh, he's using an explanation here that is found in the book of Genesis. But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed its own body. In other words, when you have a seed, you can pretty much count on that plant. If you plant it, it's going to turn into what kind of seed it actually is. And he goes on to say, all flesh is not the same. There's one kind of flesh of men, another kind of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. So again, God is reminding us, look, I programmed the information to be within the species itself, within its own kind. The same thing is said in Leviticus, speaking of the animal world. and says, these things you shall regard as an abomination uh, among the birds and shall not be eaten. The abomination is the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon, everything after its own kind, after every raven, after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after its kind, the owl, the owl fisher, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the stork, and the heron, each after its own kind, even the bat. It's interesting. You know why he says that? Because every last one of those animals feeds on carrion. Every last one of them would carry bacteria, and every last one of them is within the same kind. And so he says, look, I created them this way, Here's a couple of things you ought to know about the creation that I created. Don't eat these things. It's not going to go good for you. You will be sick. So God knows what he's doing. They're specialized. And so God is speaking to us from outside of what we call time, saying, look, here's the basic things that I did. I want you to understand it so that when you look at the information, you can use every bit of mental power that you have. You can look at your world. You can go, Wow. That kind of looks like God stuck those things within their kind. That looks like inside of their kind, there's all kinds of crazy different types of birds. You travel to Central America, South America, and you look at the the avian life there, it's mind-boggling. But they're all still birds. They all have hollow bones. They all can fly. They all have the same basic structure, same organs. Maybe slight variations, but they're all birds. They're not lizards. 
Lizards can't fly and birds don't run very well. Ever watched a penguin on land? What is it, a bird or a mammal? Nobody knows. You see, God's wise when he does things, and he does things, as he says here, very good. And when you look at the creation, that's what you're going to see, something that is very good. And it stays right where God put it, within the genetic structure of all those things, especially in plant life. When you crossbreed, you, you can't, you can't cross a redwood tree with a, with a pine tree. You, you, you have to stay within its basic species. You can have all kinds of grapes. As long as they're all grapes, you can blend those grapes together. Fruit trees, you can splice those together. They're all out of the same kind that God described here. So we have in our backyard, crazy tree. It's got four different kinds of fruit on it. It's got a plum on one side, a peach on the other, and I think it's got a apricot and a nectarine they're all in the same trunk why because they're all out of the same classification god said they'll be the same you can put those together but you're not going to mix that with grass because i'd have fruit grass in the backyard just go out there and just pick it up i wouldn't have to you know clean up the leaves god is good his creation is good and we are blessed to have a creator god who knew exactly what he's doing and told us basically what he did. Amen? Going to have the worship. Amen. Worship team's going to come back out. Going to bring some of the pastors forward. Maybe you've got a prayer need tonight. Something going on in your heart, your mind, your life. Thank you for being patient with all this pseudoscience, scientific disciplines that are kind of brought down to a level. I hope everyone can digest them a little bit. It's not intended to be overly heady. It's just simply intended that you wouldn't walk around feeling like you're inferior because you believe that God created the heavens and the earth. There's reasons for us to doubt the conclusions that have been made that have been purported to be absolutely the truth and absolutely treated as though they are fact, and evolution is certainly one of those. And so I want you armed so you're not picked off. You know, I, I'm one of those guys, I love traveling to our national parks. I'm the guy that reads all the signs. And you know what? There are times you're sitting there, oh man, this is 65 million years old. How's that work into the creation there? And, and you begin to wonder, am I crazy? No. God said, and I believe it. Amen. Father, thank you for the time tonight. Pray that you would bless us with your spirit. Help us to understand your truth, Lord. We, we know that you're a good God. We know that you love us unconditionally. That what you did in the creation, you've not given us all the details, but you've given us enough that because of what we believe about you as a creator, we can look at the universe around us and say, that's the hand of God. That's the imprint that's the imprimatur of the creator. That's your stamp. That's your signature. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that it's true. Lord, that we can rest and trust in it. Because you said it, we believe it, and that settles it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.